Welcome back to This Tuesdays Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm grand. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, the Golden Globes are back, kind of, more or less. You know, yeah, the show still doesn't have a host for this year's program that's in like 20, 26 days or something like that. And sure, no one takes it seriously anymore after a series of scandals that drove home just how ridiculous and cloistered and corrupt the nomination and voting process was. But hey, the Golden Globes are back, baby. Uh, the nominees are about what you'd expect for this year's show. Greta Gerwig's Barbie scored 10 nominations, including one for Best Picture, Musical or Comedy Division, while Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer nabbed eight. Succession led things on the TV side of things with nine nominations, while The Bear and Only Murders in the Building grab five apiece. Uh, interesting fun fact, there are six nominees in the categories this year, meaning one extra production will need to buy all those four-year consideration ads if you want to have a chance to win. And that's the real issue here. I, I, we got to step back from the actual awards. Like, we could talk about, you know, the best blockbuster box office movie that also was good award thing that they're doing, if we want <laughs> if we want to in a second. But let's, let's talk about the corruption, because I like the corruption. Uh, Hollywood award shows have always been silly to a certain extent, right? They're vanity fairs for filmmakers and studios who want to be taken seriously as artists. And they've long been crassly commercial, particularly following the introduction of Harvey Weinstein into the uh, awards ecosystem, right? Millions get spent on campaigns to win the little gold men and the other statues of various types and sizes. Uh, and some portion of those millions wind up flooding the magazines that industry insiders read to keep abreast of the news. But there's something especially self-serving about the Golden Globes, given that Penske Media not only owns Variety, uh, The Hollywood Reporter, and Deadline, but also the Golden Globes itself via its Dick Clark Productions subsidiary, um, which means that the company that owns the Golden Globes is now also the company that earns money from advertising during the Golden Globes, and also all of the advertising revenue that flows into print media for companies hoping to win Golden Globes. Again, it's just like kind of brazenly corrupt, is this it's such a integration, baby. It's this is such a bizarre thing for anyone to take seriously as not just an award season thing, but like as a business maneuver. I like I'm not even actually mad. I'm impressed, right? Penske's really eating the whole wheel of cheese over there. Alyssa, I you know, I maybe I'm just being Maybe I'm being too cynical about this, but can you believe that somebody is messing with the sanctity of the award season process? I mean, this is America. Why, like, where else in the world can you build a media empire and then invite a group of middling foreign journalists to put on a party that then forces people to buy ads in your publication, right? Like, this is a vertically integrated American dream. I just don't get, I don't, like, it's one thing, look, it's one thing uh, when we all kind of acknowledged that the Golden Globes was a fun, silly party, and the awards were almost ancillary to everything else that was going on, but I find this whole thing, like, weirdly, I just, I find it distasteful, frankly. I don't care for, I don't care for what's happening to my precious Golden Globes. Okay, that's cute. I mean, I feel like the, if we want to go deeper on the sort of challenging nature of a trade media ecosystem that 
covers, you know, an important American industry, an important American export, and all the ways in which that industry, sort of broadly speaking, is tangled up with the press that's supposed to cover it and that where it's worthwhile to have the press do a good job covering it. Yeah, I absolutely agree that that's a larger issue. But I think the the sort of concentration of Hollywood trade press in Penske Media is itself perhaps the bigger issue than any sort of conglomeration of Penske Media and the Golden Globes. Does that make sense? Totally. No, totally. I mean, and yeah. this is why almost all of my media consumption has shifted to newsletters and substacks and that sort of thing that are not owned by Penske Media. They're like, I, you know, I read The Ankler, I read Puck, I read David Poland, Scott Mendelson's new newsletter, like uh, the Entertainment Strategy guy. I like, I read... I read a bunch of different people and they all kind of like hate each other in their own ways, which is is kind of amusing and, and fascinating and fun. But like, it's not all the same stuff. There's not the same conflict of interest, except, you know, look, all of these publications are supported to a certain extent by for your consideration ads, right? Like there's yeah. always that kind of push and pull. But there's a difference between, again, Peter, maybe I'm just, tell me I'm blowing this all out of proportion, Peter. And like there, there's always been a push and pull between like, the awards bloggers and the four-year consideration ads and the the worries about conflicts of interest. And then like, well, now you just got one group that owns all the magazines and the award show and the people who make the movies have to give the award show uh, people money to add. I, I, I find it, I find it absurd. I think it's brilliant. The triumph of, of capitalism. I mean, Alyssa made the vertical integration joke already, but it's not a joke when I say it. It's just, it's, it doesn't in any way bother me because it's totally out in public. It's totally clear what's going on. And the thing that I think that is interesting or weird or absurd to me is what you said earlier, which is, why does anyone pay attention to this? And that's, I guess, the thing that I don't fully understand. The Golden Globes have never really mattered. And in this structure, it's like, what is the purpose of this? What is being awarded here? What What is the, I mean, especially with this, this new award, which we should in fact talk about because I think it is symbolic. It is demonstrative of the Golden Globes' complete lack of worth of, of anything that is that has actual value. Um, and so it's this uh, award for best cinematic and box office achievement, I think it is what it is. And it's an award that's like, in order to be, to qualify for the nomination, you have to have made a certain amount of money. I think it's 150 million uh, global with at least 100 million domestic. But there are some that maybe you can get around that if you have if you're released after November and you're projected to make a lot more money, or if you're a streaming movie and there's some data from a respected industry source, whatever the hell respected that means. Respected industry right. source. So, yes, yeah, so a respected, which, in other words, Netflix says, hey, hey, nominate us, um, right? And, or it's, and like, Netflix I guess, says, hey, I'm not going to buy, we're not going to buy $5 million <laughs> worth of ads right. in Penske Media Corporation. Corruption, it's collusion. I, I, I defy this system. But how do you even, What what is the criteria for voting on the winner? This is a thing that is actually not explained. It's not clear from the label they give the award. It's not at all explained in the announcement of the new, uh, of the new award. It's... I guess the best I can make of it is best movie that made a lot of money or the streamers say was seen by a lot of people. 
I think that's as as clear as I can get the standards. And this is kind of where, like how I view the Golden Globes is even more than the Oscars, which I think are kind of silly, but are a showcase for the way that Hollywood as a complete industry, right, the big studios in particular want to be seen. The Golden Globes aren't telling you anything about anything. And this is this is the part that actually just baffles me is if you don't like the vertically inter- integrated structure and you think these awards are bad, then you can just not pay any attention to them. And the studios could do that, too. And why don't they just say, eh, you know what, we're going to campaign for our for the Oscars. And that's what we're going to do, because we think that those things matter. And those that's the real industry awards. I think you are correct that there is no value to these things. I don't think it is corrupt inherently. It's just sort of silly and empty. And you can and and people should skip it. Or if you're a critic, you should just not pay attention to it. I couldn't tell you a Golden Globe Award that any movie or actor or director has received ever. I have absolutely no idea. I have successfully paid essentially zero attention to the Golden Globes for all of my life, and it hasn't stopped me from watching, enjoying, appreciating, writing about movies. Like, this is this is the solution here is just don't bother with it. Now, we, of course, are part of the problem here because we're doing a whole segment on the Golden Globes, and here's my here's my Golden Globes take. Who cares? I understand your point, but there is, look, there's an argument to be made that the reason studios do pay attention to this is because it is one of the few opportunities that you have to actually capture the attention of 5 million people at a go, however many people are going to end up watching this year. It is not easy to get to audiences like that. It is, it is in fact, quite difficult these days. And, you know, you could make the argument that these help set the agenda for the Oscars, even though I am frankly, very skeptical of all that, uh, particularly in the face of, you know, what actually matters, like the Screen Actors Guild Awards or the WGA Awards or like the Producers Guild Awards, actual voting members. If it's about getting the movies in front of a a large audience of a few million people, fair enough, then that's a service that this provides in that it is marketing movies and providing exposure. At the same time, I also think that if you're watching the Golden Globes, you're probably a pretty hardcore movie in Hollywood would junkie already and you have probably heard of most of these uh, movies and television shows and it's not going to be that valuable in terms of marketing if i it's very hard to imagine the the profile that like the professional uh, i don't know democrat like who who of a person who is watching the golden globes is learns something and is swayed to go spend money on that movie or or think oh now i'm going to or I, I, an academy voter who watches the golden globes and changes their vote because of something that happens at the globes i i, I suppose it has happened to a person once i can't rule it out from like all of all of history but it seems crazy to me that if that's what is happening it's kind of funny to me though that we're talking about the oscars as if there's some sort of like the equivalent of the like the Pulitzer board, right? I mean, the Oscars are notorious. I don't know, they're also silly in a trade show, but yeah. they have some cultural value in that they, like I said, they indicate how Hollywood wants to see itself, wants to be seen. I think the solution here is actually to have these sort of more general interest in nominating categories, but then pick a group of like five incredibly obscure directors, like make like Agnes Varda judge, like, best motion picture, musical, or comedy, right? Like, but <laughs> just do it for the lulz. Like, that would be hilarious to me. 
I agree, but I'm not sure the purpose of this is to make Alyssa laugh as much as I wish it were. And this and this is the thing is it's a marketing exercise for everyone involved. And if if it is the kind of marketing that ultimately might pay off, then great. Then then it's a service. Then it is a way of putting movies in front of people and getting people to spend money. And maybe maybe no one's mind is really changed by the Golden Globes directly, but there's like a margins, a ripple effect in that it like comes back at like if you win the Oscar, ultimately, like that's worth something to your career and maybe even to your box office numbers. Maybe, you know, it's obviously quite in dispute for especially for the last decade or so. Uh, and if not, then why are you bothering with it? Like, this is the thing that's anyone who is participating in this self-glorification process needs to do is justify it if you are on the outside, if you are not part of the trade public, you know, the, the, the company that owns it. Why are you participating in it? And it's because everybody else is, I guess. Well, then are you getting value out of it? I don't know. I've not heard anyone describe the value they're getting out of it. If they are, they should keep doing it. If they're not getting any value, they should quit. And not worry about it. And that goes for all the critics covering it. And it goes for the studios who are paying money for the ads or whatever. I would just interject that I think, Alyssa, it's very interesting that you mentioned the Pulitzers in this as like, we shouldn't compare it to the Pulitzers as if it's, you know, a serious thing. But like, what is the Pulitzers but the Oscars for journalism, right? It's a bunch of journalists voting on journalism stuff and like deciding what they think is important and... I mean, obviously, you know, the news is good and we, we all like we all like the news here. We're news producers and consumers and, and, and that sort of thing. But I also like Well, often the news is bad, but that's yeah. a different <laughs> I mean, I do think there are process differences, right? I mean, the Academy is a huge body of voters who have become, you know, slightly notorious for you know, folks who are not really active in the industry for these, you know, brutally honest Oscar ballots that reveal that people are making kind of wacky decisions. And I, I do think, you know, the folks who judge the Pulitzers each year do that as part of sort of a big sustained professional commitment where they are carving out time to focus intently on one category of journalism and sort of deliberating together. I mean, I think it's, I do think they're very different processes and um, that I find the the way the Pulitzers handles things you know, sort of a bit more serious than the way the Academy handles things. All right. Setting aside that question of uh, journalism self-congratulation versus Hollywood self-congratulation. <laughs> uh, yeah, journalists I, do it better. I will, I'll just say, I, again, I will just say that I am, I am appalled by the Golden Globes this year. I don't, I'm skipping ahead, but we'll, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or an controversy that a single corporate entity is making a Travis Sham mockery of the sainted Golden Globes, Hollywood's drunkest award show? Peter. It's a controversy. It's just, it's, this is awards shows, man. It's Hollywood. Ridiculous. It's marketing. Alyssa. It's a controversy. Ridiculous. You're both ridiculous. This is insane. This is a this is an insane thing that we have here. I cannot believe that you are both giving this a pass. This naked corruption and collusion needs to be called out by all all decent people. All right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode on dubbing versus subtitling, the great debate in world cinema. Uh, aside from, you know, who are the Golden Globes voters? Which where, which countries do they come from? Nobody, nobody actually cares. All right. And now on to the main event. 
The Boy and the Heron. Supposedly, probably not, the last film from Japanese animation giant Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, in the long tradition of Miyazaki's movies, the whole thing is a little bit weird, a large bit gorgeous, and entirely steeped in a culture that is incredibly foreign to Western audiences in ways that make large portions of it vaguely inscrutable. I hesitate to describe the plot of this movie, as it doesn't really do the whole thing justice. But here goes. Uh, during World War II, the mother of Mahito, a boy living in Tokyo, dies during a hospital fire. Uh, a couple of years later, the boy and his father move outside of the city to live with his new mother, who also happens to be his aunt. She is pregnant with the boy's father's child. The countryside estate has a dilapidated and closed-off tower, which the home's elderly maids are terrified of entering, as well as a gray heron who lives uh, in a nearby lake and has a tendency to alight upon the boy's windowsill and tell him that his mother awaits him in the tower. Creepy stuff, yada, yada, yada. The boy goes into the tower with the heron and one of the maids, and while there discovers Narnia, it's a Narnia-like country anyway. Uh, it's a little mystery world where the rules of aging do not strictly apply, and also there are murderous fascist parakeets who talk. The boy must save his aunt while also discovering why precisely everyone keeps telling him that his mother is in the tower, while also confronting the mysterious tower keeper who keeps the world alive by playing with malice-infested blocks. Here's the thing, and I, I say this knowing how condescending it sounds, the plot doesn't really matter that much. I would just, if you want to see this movie, I would suggest just like kind of getting rid of the idea that you're going in to see a, you know, get from point A to point B in the plot. Like many of Miyazaki's films, like say Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, you're better off not thinking too deeply about that portion of things, uh, at least partly because a lot of the imagery and references, they're just going to go over your head. Again, they're going to be kind of inscrutable to Western audiences. There's a big cultural gap between East and West, between Japanese Shinto animism and the West's conception of objects as, you know, objects, not, not spirited living things. Um, just like, here's one line, right, that will serve as kind of an example of what I mean here. At one point, a character warns our hero thusly, quote, don't touch the stone if you can, it's not happy we're here right now, end quote. Now, out of context, just saying those words aloud sounds a little bit ridiculous. In context, with the imagery of the crackling electricity streaming out of the stone and the knowledge that something weird and beautiful and dangerous is happening, it actually makes perfect sense. The stone did look angry. I wouldn't want to touch it myself. I can see where the movie is coming from. Um, the joy of Miyazaki is in the character design, the fluidity of the action, the dreamlike nature of the worlds his characters inhabit. And that very dreamlike quality makes the actual story a bit more disjointed than I think many audiences will like. Uh, you, but if you just let it wash over you, if you give yourself over to the emotion rather than the logic of the storytelling, I think it works despite being mildly flummoxed by some of the references and being vaguely annoyed at the knowledge that I was simply missing uh, some of the meaning, maybe even much of the meaning of what was happening on screen, I still find myself pretty close to tears at the end. I won't say exactly why yet. You know, spoilers later on. If you're worried about that sort of thing, don't listen. Um, but it is at heart about the fluidity and the rigidity of time and memory. And if that seems like a contradiction, it is. But also it makes sense in the world of the movie. Peter, after watching The Boy and the Heron, uh, you told us it featured murder parakeets. And I like, I believed you, but I was like, murder parakeets, what does that mean? But in fact, it, they are very specifically murder fascist parakeets. 
Uh, what did you make of Murder Parakeets the movie, which is what I'm going to call this from now on? I loved it, and I frankly want to see a whole spinoff, uh, like uh, the, the when they did um, the one about the Despicable Me characters, right? The Minions. Minions. I want to see like a Murder Parakeets expanded parakeets. universe. It's just Ed. So we all saw this uh, dubbed, and the leader of the Murder Parakeets, of course, is voiced by Dave Bautista, who is just great as this kind of ridiculous uh, blowhard fascist murder parakeet leader so much bigger than all the other murder parakeets and i'm focusing on this because it's the funniest two or three word phrase that you can pull out of the movie murder fascist parakeets right and and it's it is they are very amusing and all of those bits are great but there is something about this sort of the way that this movie can include so many seemingly unrelated elements that don't seem to fit together. And it just exists in a kind of a dream space that somehow or another makes its own sense without actually having a straightforward logic that you can just line up the dominoes and explain in a conventional way. And this is a harder trick to, to pull off than I think people realize. Uh, David Lynch does it well. Uh, the original Disney Alice in Wonderland does some version of this, and you already mentioned Narnia uh, as an inspiration here. It very clearly is uh, maps to, to Narnia somewhat, but I think also Alice in Wonderland, right? This is a story about a, a child who goes down the rabbit hole and finds, uh, finds himself in a world where the rules don't quite make sense and you're just running into this episodic succession of weird scenarios and characters and it seems like there's an underlying logic but you couldn't explain what that logic is in words and it it manages it like to do that and to make it and to, without just feeling like what this is totally random is a very difficult task and part of the way that the movie draws you in and draws all of this together is just through the art direction but part of it is something else that i i actually find myself a little bit struggling to explain and i've been thinking about the difference between just kind of bizarre nonsensical randomness and what this movie accomplishes which is that that sense that one has in a dream which is that there are rules but you can't discover them you can't fully know them, but it somehow or another, it all makes sense. And I think it's just, I think it's just that as in a dream, Miyazaki is pulling from his own conscious and subconscious and he, and it's, this movie is clearly very personal to him in ways that we probably don't fully understand. And that it just, it captures that sense of being in a, in a dream and sort of vaguely knowing that you're in a dream and trying to figure out why, why is reality not stable and not working the way that it should here? And I really appreciated that. It's also, it's gorgeous. The soundtrack is wonderful. The American voice work, which I know we're going to talk about uh, elsewhere, is, is really quite good. Um, and it just, it has a kind of uh, mix of terror and innocence to it that I think, uh, that I found really appealing. And also I think, when you compare it with American children's movies, this movie does something that so few American children's films, and in particular Hollywood children's films, you know, made the big budget children's movies managed to do, which we've talked about on this podcast, and I think Alyssa has talked specifically about before, is that if you go back to old children's stories, Hans Christian Andersen, The Brothers Grimm, they weren't gory and gross and sort of like awful. They were appropriate for children, but there was often stuff that was weirdly terrifying. And they presented a world that was in fact scary at times, 
that had death and loss in it, and also a world that didn't always totally make sense to to young eyes. And Pixar movies and Disney movies and DreamWorks movies always want to wrap everything up into something that fundamentally makes total logical sense. The beats line up. It's just totally clear, even if it's a talking shark, right? Like it just behaves like this. Oh, it behaves like this type of person. And it's it totally knowable. There's no ambiguity or mystery to it. And there's also no real terror. This movie gets at that kind of innocent terror uh, of, of a strange and weird world that... Uh, that captures, I think, the way that ch- that children uh, certainly it captures an old model of children's tale, but captures, I think, uh, something about the way that children themselves see the world, because it's not just sort of a horror show. It's not some R-rated grisly thing, but it's frightening at times. It's also funny at times and just sort of delightful and strange. And it's also just kind of un- not it's kind of mysterious. Right. You don't know how those rules work. And I I just love the way that this movie gets at all that, and then makes it accessible to someone like me, a you know, middle-aged man. Uh, Miyazaki's a genius, and I, I don't know that I think this is, this is not my favorite of his films, but it is a very, very good movie. And anyone who likes fantasy or uh, Miyazaki films should go see this, and definitely don't be intimidated by the, I don't know, this is Japanese anime, or this is an- weird animation, or anything like that. Yeah. Alyssa, it feels like what Peter is describing is a Japanese rolled doll. Yes. That's that that's, is what that's yep. kind of what that's kind of what he it, it's I'm saying that's what it it's a, I don't know that I would necessarily describe this movie that way, but it it's not it's not an inapt comparison exactly. Yeah, I think that's I'm not sure that's quite right just because Miyazaki's worlds can be cruel, but they're not sort of pointlessly nasty the way that some of the villains in Dahl's stories often are. Um, I would say his movies don't have like a vengeful streak particularly, whereas Dahl absolutely does. Um, And that's part of the appeal of Dahl's storytelling is like getting, you know, Matilda getting her revenge on the Trunchbull and getting to live with Miss Honey, you know, um, the main character in The Witches, like him and his grandma teaming up on this sort of lifelong quest to eradicate this threat to humanity. The, you know, the rat in the jar of candy in the short stories from Boy, et cetera. Um, and I, I like Roald Dahl a lot. I mean, I, you know, I, we talked about him a little bit earlier this year. I really grew up on not just his, you know, novels and short stories, but his memoirs, Boy and Going Solo. The other thing about doll stories is there isn't really a sense of spirituality to them, which there really is in Miyazaki. I mean, I I don't feel like I know enough about sort of animist practice um, to describe them necessarily as religious movies, but they're absolutely sort of spiritual. There's a sense of holiness in these movies in a way that's not really true in doll's work. And it's interesting to me that both in our, you know, our group chat about this. And, you know, now we've been talking a lot about the fantastical elements of the movie. But part of what, you know, makes this movie really powerful is that the real world doesn't make any sense either, right? I mean, this is a story about a little boy whose mother ostensibly dies in this violent incident, like obviously during World War II. He doesn't see her body and is sort of living with some level of uncertainty about whether she's actually alive. His father has entered into this 
you know, new relationship. Like he's been given this replacement mother who is his aunt, who is pregnant. And he's been brought to this country home that is unusual, right? I mean, it's big, it's mysterious, it's entrancing in a lot of ways. But this is obviously the story of a child who has not sort of fully psychologically integrated everything that's happened to him. And the movie is Freudian in the sense that the unreality of dream space gives all of the characters, in fact, a chance to sort of work out the irrationality in their own lives. And come to be more both sort of psychologically integrated as people and integrated as a family unit, right? I mean, it's kind of telling that the person who actually disappears into the dream world first and is kind of held captive is not Suko, right? It's not, you know, it's not Mahito who kind of explores the space a little bit but doesn't get trapped. It's, you know, this woman who was this boy's aunt has lost her sister, is grieving that and still sort of coming to terms with, you know, this new role that she's sort of ostensibly excited about, but that obviously, you know, she has some unresolved feelings about, right? I mean, she's a pregnant woman who has kind of gone into this dream, this suspended animation dream space where it's like, is her pregnancy really continuing? Is she about to give birth? Or is she kind of in stasis, you know, Mahito kind of goes searching for her out of a sense of obligation, right? He's kind of moved forward by higher values. He's not sure he likes her. He's not sure he wants her to be his mother or even to have a sibling, but he feels like he should go. And it's sort of in the quest itself that he both grieves his mother and gets permission from a version of his mother in the spirit world to love someone else and to become attached to someone else. And though he never enters the dream world itself, Maito's father ultimately goes on this quest, right? I mean, you see him find, you know, he comes home from the factory, learns that Natsuko and Maito are missing and like gears up, right? And you've seen him previously be sort of aggressively absent for Mahito, right? Like he's always rushing off to the factory. He's kind of like dumps Mahito on Natsuko. He doesn't really ask how he's doing. He shows up briefly after the schoolyard um, altercation to be like, Daddy, will make sure you get your vengeance for this fight. But he's totally unengaged as a father. And again, it's in the quest for his son and his wife that he kind of becomes present again as a father and they become integrated as a family unit. And there's actually all of this scientific literature. You know, when women give birth, their bodies produce oxytocin, the sort of bonding hormone. And for men, the actual act of parenting, like holding a baby, caring for it, like the quest is what turns you into a father sort of chemically as well as practically. And, you know, the movie is very much about the sort of act of being the family, right? It's like, you may not like this person, but if you show up and go looking for them, they sort of become family to you along the way. And, Sometimes you need the sort of unreality. You need to play with a narrative in a dream space to become integrated out again in the real world. And, you know, the, the movie is both obviously, you know, sort of specific to Miyazaki, to Japan, but I do really see that sort of Freudian influence on kind of the irrational as a tool that you use to you know, sort of navigate and hopefully if, you know, if you're able to do it in a productive way to sort of reintegrate the part of your lives that don't make sense and to discover some kind of order. And again, we sort of joke about the parakeets, but 
you know, they're a very interesting way of talking about how a child might have perceived the fascist movements in Japan, in Germany, et cetera. I mean, the parakeets are wandering around with like posters that say Duce on them, which sort of seems like a reference to Il Duce. You have the, you know, the sort of, you know, parakeet eagle emblem, um, you know, and the idea of something, you know, not being able to look directly at those regimes, but that feeling that there is something menacing and ridiculous that wants to eat you up is a very sort of sharply observed way of thinking about how children might have observed fascist movements, sort of fascist individuals, fascist leadership, which is actually not something that you see in World War II images very often, right? I mean, you don't actually have a lot of storytelling that makes it to the West that's about the experience of being a child, a German, you know, Gentile child in Hitler's Germany or a child in, you know, Hirohito's Japan. And it's very interesting to see, again, not even necessarily sort of the core thing in the story, but, you know, as part of the backdrop, that combination of silliness and menace. Um, and I thought that was really compellingly done. See, this is this is one reason why I've always uh, kept Miyazaki at a minor remove and I, I, I've always felt somewhat distant from him is because we say like, well, this isn't the primary thrust of the story, but I think it, it may very well be the act, like there are so many images and symbols here that I simply do not have a frame of reference for that I I don't know if one could make an argument that this is sure. entirely about Imperial Japan or World War II Japan. Like, what what is the old man in the tower if not the Emperor Hirohito desperately trying to keep everything together and then having it all smashed apart by the angry fascist parakeets? Like, I, I, I or maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe I'm just projecting because I'm guessing. Again, I like to watch these movies. I never feel like I actually understand them. And that is mildly frustrating. I did not see the old man in the tower as uh, the Japanese emperor, though I'm just, that sounds totally plausible to me. Um, I saw the old man in the tower as, in some ways, as Miyazaki himself, uh, but uh, maybe more generally as a kind of creator who is coming to the end of his existence, who has held an imaginative world together, one that doesn't really make sense if you try to describe it, but uh, but is now looking to pass on the responsibility. And it is about... It's about legacy and it's about what happens after you're no longer around to maintain the world that you have built and designed and imagined and cared for every day. And the, the movie is infused with a kind of old person's, you know, looking back uh, at at that, at his or her, but his creation in this case, and, and a sense that you have to let it go and a worry about what that might mean about which forces might end up taking over and being the ones to to either mean you know uh, take your legacy and and do something you wouldn't like with it or to just let it collapse completely and it is there's this kind of elderly or end of life regret isn't quite right but a kind of a a sadness and a you know, worry, but also an acceptance of you won't be around and it's just going to be in the hands of whoever comes next. 
So this is actually anime succession is what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's really a shame that the old man wasn't voiced by Brian Cox. Yeah. I mean, I do think it is, you know, sort of a mark of the greatness of Miyazaki cinema, though, and kind of a refutation to a lot of kind of contemporary conversation about movies that you don't need to be Japanese. You don't need to get all of the references to be deeply moved by it. It works. I'm sure it works as a, you know, sort of Japan-specific commentary about the boy. And in fact, you know, I mean, Miyazaki was born, I think, in 1941. He, I mean, his earliest memories are of bombings of Japan, um, both, I think, both in um, Tokyo and then the cities where they evacuated. But you don't have to know that. And in fact, you know, it's totally, I don't think it lessens the movie or Miyazaki's work in general to just sort of see it on two levels or on multiple levels. Um, and so that cultural specificity is wonderful. I'm glad it's there. I don't think the movies would exist. I mean, Miyazaki's movies would not be what they are without his, you know, his personal story, his national story. But Again, you could understand literally nothing about that and still be utterly transported by them. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on uh, The Boy and the Heron, a.k.a. Murder Fascist Parakeets, the movie. Uh, Peter. <laughs> Good movie. Thumbs up. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. I enjoyed it. Okay, that is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends! A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday!